ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a, a very special edition of the Corner Store Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Kevin Koval, and as you know, we every week talk to creatives uh, from around the world, um, and, and today is a special day because we have someone who is really kind of allowed the world in part to glimpse the largest global youth culture on the face of the planet. Uh, we have someone in the building who has literally documented from the early, early origins uh, some of the most vibrant and fresh cultural expressions that the planet has ever seen. Uh, someone who is a photographer, a documentary filmmaker, uh, an advocate for hip-hop culture and cultural practice, and for young people in general. We have uh, the incredible Henry Chalfant in the corner store. Welcome, man. Hi, Kevin. It's <laughs> Good. a pleasure to be here. Man, it, it is it is an honor, and, and I want to say just from, from the beginning, for so many of us, you know, you you and, and your films are and your books, uh, it, in 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 a lot of ways, have been many across the across the globe, many people's first interaction with the vibrancy of hip hop as a cultural form uh, via graffiti and you know in Style Wars you know, b-boying and DJing and the whole cultural elements, you in some ways are, uh, you know, the gateway drug. Yeah, well, um, did you write? Did, I, I was not a writer. Um, I loved it and, and followed it, uh, followed writers on, on the trains in Chicago, but um, had a very whack bubble letter in my notebook, but never, you know, went out, went out myself. Yeah, people, you know, writers used to say to me about five years into this project, "Man, you've been you've been exposed to some of the best writers. You must be good." Um, and I said, <laughs> "Are you kidding? I have no style at all." And very early on, saw how difficult it was, and I thought, "No, let me stick to taking pictures of it." Well, there was, you start you started as a as a sculptor. Uh, yeah, I was a sculptor. Right. Um, so I want you know. I, want I, could, to, I could have developed a style, but I was busy taking pictures. Yeah, and documenting. In fact, in fact, I made a few like belt buckles and things like that out of out of bronze for friends and one for myself using style. Oh, really? Copying somebody's copying somebody's style. Right, right. But right. it was there. I could have done it. Well, Maybe so I, I, I want to talk about how you came to document it, but but of course you were an artist and, and have been an artist um, and I would, I, I'm just curious about how you got started making. Well, I think coming to New York was, was a goal of mine because being an artist, you wanted to be at least around the, the art world and it, <clears throat> what, it was, what it was doing. And New York was pretty much a center of things at the time. Um, and our, my mentors and my wife's mentors were, were all saying, you should go to New York, you should go to New York because, you know, she's a... She's an actor, and you know I was a sculptor, and so we thought, well, let's go. So that we came in the early '70s when New York was in a, in a crisis state, and people were fleeing. It was a great time to come because we we could establish ourselves without, you know, I try to. I wouldn't try it now as a young person. I don't know how you would manage. Yeah, it's just insane. Couldn't afford to. Then you could you could get big spaces for very little money and. <clears throat> You know, and, and it was all concentrated around, you know, Manhattan and Lower Manhattan. Everything was happening, whether it was music or, or uh, you know, art. It was all happening there. So it was a great time to come. Um, and, of course, one of the features was 
people were writing on the trains and writing on walls everywhere. It was, it was a new phenomenon. You know, maybe three or four years after. Uh, you know, of course, there's always been chalk graffiti and crayon graffiti forever in in New York and you know, on the walls and everything, but that doesn't last. So, what were your first impressions even before you started to, of course, document it? Like, what were your when you first saw some of those? I think I was impressed by the individuality of the writing styles already. I mean, they were everyone was different, and you began to recognize names of people over and over. Um, so you you already knew early on maybe a dozen names of, of really upwriters, and there were tags all over. Who are some of the names early on that you recall liking? I have my, my mind go blank, why not? You know, Junior <laughs> and K161 and, and uh, I don't know, Pistol, just uh, Julio with a number, I forget the number. You know, of course, you know, by by 73, when we came here, Taki was all over the place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, shock. Shock was, well, he's, he's a little younger. Uh, who am I thinking of? Wasp and Schick. They were, they were out pretty early on. So it was, you know, I was following those people who later on, I, I realized were some of the, you know, founders, some of the famous early people um, you know and who knew at that time we didn't know it was going to go someplace yeah no of as course I, as I watched you know as, as a new as a newcomer in New York I watched all the evolution you know from from tagging and, and from simple style on the trains and then finally people enclosing the letters and putting putting fill in inside and all the all the doodads they put in there and, and really there became this competition of, of the evolving style. You know, who could, you know, who could get up most, but also who could do the most beautiful and the most insanely original thing. That must have been incredible to witness the evolution of that style in such a short period of time right in front of your eyes. Very exciting. It was very exciting. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so you said you came to New York in 73... Um, which is also, you know, when Herc kind of has that party that is, you know, at, at 1520 Cedric Ave, which is right. said to be a beginning of sorts. Um, yes. But, but you know, as you said, people were already writing. I mean, you, you, you came to the city and our, so um, in those next bunch of years, what were you doing in New York? And, and at what point did you, did you start to think about documenting what you were seeing? Well, I was... I was making sculpture right off the right off the bat. I had a studio on in, in Soho, um, you know, on on Grand Street, and uh, <clears throat> there was a there was a, another sculptor, a young sculptor, on opposite, right across the street, and he and I were you know sharing notes and talking to each other and becoming friends, and he he said, well, there's a there's a collective going, you know, we're we're, we're starting. Um, a cooperative gallery over on Thompson Street, and uh, you know, would you like to be involved? So I said, sure. So this was right in the first year I was there. So uh, I immediately got into a situation with other artists and uh, having this space and and showing work. So that was very very exciting and good 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 to do. But it was. Um, it was a couple of years later, I think, I was watching graffiti and, and I, I went to that Razor Gallery exhibit in Soho 
where Phase Two and, and uh, a bunch of other writers had had showed. Yeah, right. Which so I thought, wow, you know, it's, this is amazing. But but of course I didn't get there to the opening, so I didn't meet anybody. Um, then several years later, I think by '76, I started going out looking for pieces, looking for ways to shoot something uh, on the trains, and I couldn't. I either couldn't get close enough, uh, but nothing came out. And I only had one lens. I had my 50 millimeter lens. So I, I remember standing on the top on the top of the stands at Baker's Field, trying to take pictures on the one line. So you do little little things, <laughs> no good. Right. It wasn't until I think the summer of '77, I, I kind of said, "Let me go up and see what there is." And I took I took a, one of the twos and fives to the Bronx, and uh, ended up. It was a weekend, and so the transit parked trains in the center track on weekends because they weren't being used. So between two stations, and we're outside at this point on the elevated, I see, you know, Lee's famous Lee Mono Dock, the Christmas car parked yeah, there. Yeah, oh my God. I'm like, God damn, I've got to get that. <laughs> and, I, and so when I got to Intervale Avenue, uh, the only way I said I could do it, I, I ran back on the catwalk, you know, between stations. Wow. And, and Which is was, dangerous. It's quite dangerous. I mean, you think, well, there's not going to be a train right behind this one, you hope. Right. <laughs> and who knows if there's a cop who will see me. I don't know. But I thought, I've got to get that. And I ran out in the middle. And I did my, my it was the first one where I went, bam, ran two steps, bam, bam. I took maybe, there were two cars. So it was a it was a married couple. Wow. So I took I took you know whatever twelve fifteen shots just to get that thing, and then ran back to the station. No train came, no cops saw me. It was okay, but that was the first of my you know segmented collage trains, and that that informed me that this is the way I could do it. I can just stand in the station and wait till they come. Right. And there there you are, and that's why it happened. And I thought. Of course, I thought this is pretty hokey. As a, as a photographer, you wouldn't have, you know, four shots that you'd have to splice together every time. That's pretty dumb. But it was the only way I could do it. And now I'm so glad I did that because what it did was, I I I documented the art, nothing else, you know. And and everything it's like a cohesive collection. They're all the same in their frame. Yes. You know, this, right. And, and you know, so I have like you know five or six hundred frame in that, all in the same thing. So it gives you an idea of the, you know, the extent of this network on the transit system. And and of course, you know, well, first of all, I think that's fascinating that that sometimes the documentarians, particularly of of graffiti, end up following in the steps of the writers who are you know you realize very quickly are risking their lives in order to do their art. Um, I, I'm sure that must have been um, harrowing and horrific. And I, have you had you been? Were you arrested? Were, did you injure yourself? You, you're putting your body in peril potentially. You are. Um, I mean, I was not. I mean, I went. I went once with the with the kids into the yard and uh, to paint at night, and that was harrowing. That was harrowing. We were there painting. It's okay. We crawled through a hole in the fence. The, the security wasn't really strong then. They were still chain link fences, and you could cut the hole and crawl through. So we were in in New Lots Avenue in East New York, 
and um, we had been there maybe half hour, an hour, and and I hear Min saying, "Yo, chill, chill, chill," and putting up his hand because inside the train he saw people running towards us, workers with pipes, and <laughs> he said, "We got to get out of here." We grabbed the paint and ran like hell out the hole in the fence. So that was that was tense. Yeah. And then I was saying, okay, time to go to bed. <laughs> and they were like, no, we got to do something. We have all this paint. So we went to Sutton Boulevard uh, in Queens, where you had to go down the hatch and into under and, and crawl because the trains are parked in rows. And to be safer, you'd crawl to the middle under the trains into the center train track. And then you could paint more or less with impunity. But... To get there, you had to crawl over the third rail, under the train, and the trains were live at night in the yard. Their, compute, their compressors were running, you could hear them starting up. So that was tense. So I, I had a taste of, of just how harrowing it is. My own experience taking pictures was almost completely problem-free. Maybe the cops stopped me about three times. And they said, what are you doing? I said, it's a, it's a class project. I'm, I'm a teacher. Right. You know, innocent, innocent me. And they said, well, you know you have to have a permit. Oh, so I didn't know that. And they said, well, you go to transit in Brooklyn and go there and get your permit. But the, I went there, and the permit only lasts for a day, only for one shoot. I said, well, I'll never get anywhere that way. So I, I said, I just hope I don't see the same cop twice. And I didn't. So... Right. So, of course, some of these photos you you put together um, in in a few different books. Right? There's uh, you know there's subway art, there's spray can art. Um, both both come out in the same year. No. Okay. Subway art came out in two thousand four. No, nineteen eighty four. Right. And spray can art in nineteen eighty seven. Okay. Um, Martha Cooper and I worked from about 1982 to worked on this book and tr- and dragged it around to publishers trying to get it published. Yeah, and what what was people didn't want to publish it or were they receptive? In New York, they didn't want to publish it. Right. New York hated graffiti. Of the upper echelons of society, hated graffiti with a passion. And so, who's who are the publishers? They're they're like you know. Uh, culturally upper echelon people you would say right and and they they hated it and then so where did you have to get it who eventually we you know Martha had done a a story for Stern magazine um, and she had a woman who who acted as her agent there this woman said to Martha send the send your mock-up we had dummy of the book Send it to me, and I'll take it to the Frankfurt Book Fair um, and see if there's a publisher there. That might. So Martha and I said, fuck that, we'll take it to the Frankfurt Book Fair. And we, we, we made this thing, and we, we did our research in, in New York City of the different publishers that we liked. We'd go to bookstores, and we liked Thames and Hudson, we liked Workman, we liked you know Abrams, we thought that these were all good publishers and they were good publishers that they would be the best to go to and they would be at the Frankfurt Book Fair so we went 
And the, the agent was like, oh no, you shouldn't. They never want to see you, blah, blah, blah. You should have an agent, blah, blah, blah. And we said, well, you can be the agent, but we're coming to do it. We dragged that book and we had it on a trolley, you know, the, a luggage carrying trolley, because it was, it was three feet long and this like this. And, and we walked into the book fair and the first booth we came to was Thames and Hudson. And we plunked it up on their table. And the, the art director of Thames and Hudson was the daughter of the publisher. Um, and she loved it. And she, she said, well, I think we can do this. Wow. You know, and so it, it came out from there. We, right. didn't have to, we didn't have to go any further. And, and how did you meet uh, Martha Cooper, the incredible photographer? Photographer and documentarian. Yeah. Along about you know seventy nine, uh, early eighty, I was hearing from other writers. You know, I was saying, like, yo, there's this lady, and she she's hooked up with Dondi, and she's taking pictures of of trains and of, of graffiti artists and all of that. And so I heard about her, and she heard about me through the grapevine. And we didn't meet until I had an exhibit. In 1980, in September, at the in Soho at the OK Harris Gallery, um, a, a week long, very short little thing, one little room and 20 pictures. Um, all trains, or all trains, yeah. just trains, straight yeah. trains. And um, to that exhibit, because the grapevine word word got out, and hundreds of, of writers came, and writers and fans came to the show. Um, and Dondi brought Martha, so that's wow. when I met her. Yeah, and now we were like, you know, I think we liked each other, but we were like very jealous. Oh, really? Yeah, because you know, who was gonna who was gonna make a book? <laughs> so you, how did the idea of collabing then come together? Because she, just like me, tried to do it in New York and uh, got, shut down. got shut out. Yeah, right. And and we we said, well, let's collab. Which was a good idea because our photos are so different and they're complementary in, in the way she has the all those culture pictures and has the photos in context and then I have my you know this is the art variety and uh, so we took it we took it around together in New York and we were shot down that way too that's how we that's how we had the idea to go to Europe um, that that book also comes out in the same year that Style Wars comes out yes. So that's a big year for you. That's a big year for well, the culture. Years, that's when I stopped sculpting. I stopped in about 1982 because by then I was working with Martha on the book and working with Tony on Style Wars. And they were two heavy-duty, heavy-duty projects and I didn't have any time or inclination to do anything else. And it, in part you stopped because of the, the passion, the desire to, to document, yeah. to tell these stories? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I, you know, being a sculptor, being a solitary studio artist in any case is pretty solitary and pretty separate from, and, and sculpture especially because especially working in stone, you can work on one piece for six months, and a lot of the work is just you know refining it, polishing parts of it, you know, changing slightly things and until it's refined. It just takes a long, long time, and you're isolated. And I felt isolated, and I felt a little bit out of touch with, with this incredible city that I was in. I might have been I, I might have been in Carrara making my work, 
Um, and I began to do work which was modeled on trash that I found in the gutter. Mm. I started finding shards of glass from broken ripple bottles and night train bottles and wine and stuff like that. These shards of glass that were everywhere because you know then public drinking was not not illegal or nobody cared. Or, you know it was a condition of New York. There were smashed bottles everywhere, and I'd find some really nice shards and use that as a takeoff point for for my sculpture mm. which I would make you know these large things which reflected the curves of the bottle and the jagged edges of the broken glass mm. which you know was fun to make and I was I was uh, even you know it would take six months to make one and what do you come up with a little shard <laughs> <laughs> an imitation shard of glass right so that was uh, but it was this this sense of the city is exciting you know, I want to be out there. So I was going out there to find, you know, to, to take pictures of, of Graf. That was my first connection to it. Style, style Wars is, you know, in every, at this point, I mean, I think every hip-hop kid I knew watched it in some way. Uh, it sits in the center of every hip-hop uh, class now in college. Um, it's part of how rest of the planet you know, along with spray can art and, and, and uh, how people got to see what was happening in New York. You worked on the film for how long? Um, we started in the spring spring of 1981. Um, we shot that scene of the battle with Roxette and Dynamic yeah. in Queens. And I think one or two other scenes, I don't... We shot that, and we shot a bunch of trains passing through the Bronx, through the rubble, um, with the idea that maybe we would put my pictures, which is nice and bright, on these trains as they pass, you know, do a little dummy, uh, what do you call it, I don't know, uh, fake, <laughs> faking the trains. Because at that time, they were, they were becoming a little hard to get. There were cross-out wars we were beginning in 1981, and the transit was buffing things and um, so that was that was what we shot but then we we, we by then by then we'd, we'd spent our money we were using our personal money <laughs> oh wow it. wow and we had to raise we had to raise money um, and so it took us it took us a year the better part of I mean a year a year and more to really get any money to do it uh, at which we got through funding from the first we got through Channel 4 in Britain gave us some money and then when we had that in place uh, CBS the Corporation of Public Broadcasting the CPB which was the, the mother or father of public television here they they got interested and they they supported most of what we did and then we had to get other grants because it costs a lot of money you know film shooting yeah way more than video right where you know because you have to the process of the film the the lighting has to be right. You know, you have to have a go into the yard, or go into where you're going to shoot with with a rather large crew, and you know a lot of equipment relative right. to what you do, you know, with video now. You know that. So obviously, it, it, it documents a moment that um, you know is is in the past, a moment that inspired millions of people around the planet. Um, and, and, and that is a beautiful aspect of the film. One of my favorite things about, about Style Wars 
is the intimacy and vulnerability you get from some of the subjects, some of the writers and their families, and also some of the MTA officials and politicians. Um, you know, it, 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 it reminds me of my favorite kind of journalism, uh, and I, I'm a Chicagoan, so I think a lot about Studs Terkel um, and his kind of, you know, guerrilla journalism or, or you know, oral, oral history. And, and it seems um, in, in that lineage, and, and, and I wonder how, you know, is that something that you uh, developed in that practice, or have you always been interested in people's stories uh, and, and, and just kind of were, were able to, to pull them out? Um, no, it was, for me, it was, a, it was a first experience. I think I had always I had always been interested in in young people's creativity that you know in, in untrained artists and the work that they did um, had always interested me um, telling stories I don't think so much um, and I was drawn to the graffiti artists for those reasons which I had always been fascinated with you know, this kind of unschooled creativity. And uh, then the collaboration with Tony was very important for both of us because he had, a, he had a, a kind of public vision of the whole thing. That's why we have Mayor Koch and, and the head of the Transit Authority. He envisioned the film on a big stage of New York City in crisis. And I was focused on the on the world of the writers and the b boys, and that's you know I had a by then a rather you know close relationship with with a lot of people from that world because of the uh, you know I was I was documenting their work which they appreciated and they were giving me information in exchange and helping move me forward and uh, so that relationship between me and Tony in, included this very human quality that you're talking about and yet also a big social uh, stage that it was played out on and and of course what was what was the response once the film came out um, from some of the people in it uh, you know on, on kind of both sides of this issue um, some of the writers you knew I, I'm curious as to what they thought what their families thought and then did you ever get a response from the mayor's office or from the MTA about about what they thought of the film, given that you know they are the great uh, and you know bumbling villain in some ways of, of the film. Yeah, the only the only direct response I had was when I went to a I was invited to a convention of of uh, uh, anti graffiti squads or vandal squads at a convention in Seattle. And you know, I was billed as as the representative of the of their opposition, um, which was an interesting thing to walk into a room of ninety nine Vandal Squad people, and they were and they were, but it was also humorous because they were into it and they booed me and you know I kind of thing. So, but there, and this was several years later, several years after making the film, uh, I met. Bernie Bernie Jacobs, who was the cop, you know, who says what he says about it. Yeah. Three and a half million people a day, they have rights too, you know. <laughs> he, and he was there, and he said, "Oh my God, you!" 
And he said, well, you know, I have to tell you, I, like I said in the film, I would never have done this voluntarily. I think that it was probably a bad move because you're just going to encourage people. But also, we, we thought you were going to really do a hatchet job on us and make mockery of us. And, and you really treated us fairly. Oh, so, wow. You know. Yeah. And there was, you know, we, we had a little fun with them with uh, making them look kind of funny, but wasn't as bad as it could have been. So he appreciated that. Uh, I didn't really get, you know, the, the public response early on was predictable. The, the audience would divide, you know, almost 50-50 between, you know, its vandalism and its art. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're, you know, and I, I know because they, you know, when the 20... Uh, 25 year anniversary film came out you you also put in you know these great um, follow-up interviews with uh, a lot of the writers and and so I would imagine over the years you've maintained a kind of relationship with 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 folks yeah yeah I've you know over the years I've definitely seen seen people some of them on quite a regular basis and you know collaborating on various projects people having shows and I would go to them and they would come to mine and so we we've kept up and uh, even you know most recently I had that show at the Bronx Museum congratulations by the way yeah thank you beautiful and, yeah and everybody everybody came to that you know people of course after 40 years you don't recognize people anymore they're they're not skinny little kids they're chubby middle-aged people <laughs> right 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 well and and i you know so i i want to i want to i want to come back to graffiti but but you also have made um other films and have written other books and put out other books one film that i want to talk about because it's been so important to uh my understanding and, and i think and also i i use it in the classroom is flying cut sleeves yeah um which came out of the 90s yes 94 it came out um yeah. But oh my God, this is! It's... I was very lucky to chance upon Benji Melendez, who was the president of the Ghetto Brothers, in Fashion Moda. So the connection to my world of graffiti in the Bronx was Fashion Moda, which was this gallery that Stefan Ice had had founded. And I went in there one afternoon just randomly, and there was this this dude sitting there showing people these jackets with the with the colors painted on them and uh he and i got into a conversation and i said you know why not why not have a show of these things you know hang them up on the wall frame them they're beautiful and he said hey that's a great idea you give me a hand maybe we'll do that and he said you know you should go talk to this person who knows more about has a bigger archive about gangs than anybody i know it's this woman named rita fetcher um, and she lives in the Chelsea Hotel. You go to the Chelsea Hotel and ask for Rita on the roof, and uh, you'll find her. So I went and I found Rita, and she did indeed have a big archive, and I understood then that she had started to make, or she had made a film for her art master's degree, uh, starting, I think, in 1970. So it was a black-and-white video, uh, portable little carrier of the the videotape, one of the early good systems and she had this footage of these kids as teenagers black and white footage and um, 
it seemed to me, and then both of us had the idea, we thought, well, why don't we do something with this now? Because she had made a film which had been lost in a fire, but these, a lot of the original material had been unscathed. And uh, so we said, well, why don't we go try to find them now and see what's happened? You know, and the now was like 20 years later, in 1988, um, when we started. So we found, I think, four out of the five that we were looking for. And uh, two guys, two women. Yeah, I mean another guy anyway but the film is so it's it's so important for i think an understanding of how hip-hop emerges and and when i show the films in you know in classes that i teach i show flying cut sleeves before i show style wars um because in some ways it it gives you the foundation of of how and where hip-hop is emerging from yeah it's very good it's very good to see it in that in the in that light both the conditions that the city was in, and especially in places like these marginal neighborhoods like the Bronx and East New York, how really awful they were. I mean, one of the things I show, and you can put it in the, the podcast, is uh, a series of photos. One is a one is a statue, you know, a traditional statue in a park, which is covered with graffiti, and you know, you think, oh no, that's vandalism, and then I. The next slide is Ho Avenue, <clears throat> where most of the buildings are rubble, and the train is passing through um, with graffiti on it. And you know, you have to say, what's the real crime? You're right. These. Right. It's that. That's a massive, massive human crime that took place in the in the seventies and eighties in New York and lots of other places. Yeah. You know, which is local and also national you know the, uh, the Reagan ideas which came which were floating around to to abandon the uh, Rust Belt cities because they were unfixable and the, so they stopped funding them they, they started putting funding using all the federal funds for the south and the west the southwest you know to develop those areas and it was in the midst of the development of the of the highway system, you know, the interstate highway system. So all of this just sucked, sucked the life out of these cities, leaving the people high and dry. So, you know, and then the collusion with the real estate interests and the city kind of was, was part of that. And so you have to say, well, you know, criminal conspiracy, which affected hundreds of thousands of lives. Yeah. Um, and then in the third photograph in that series that I like to show is a Hoe Avenue rubble with a few buildings around with their windows empty. And what's happening? There's rusty mattresses and mattress and bed springs in this brick-strewn lot. And the kids are ex- executing these, you know, perfect gymnastic moves, flying aerobatic, aerobatic gymnastic moves over these landing on the mattress. You know, and you have to say this is this is the story of the emergence of this art form and, and of hip hop is out of nothing. The incredible creativity of these young people made it all, made it all up. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, you know, I, I first of all, I, I appreciate the conversation, and I, I, you know, could really talk for hours, and I, I don't want to take too much of your time. I, I do wonder about um you you know this this, the moment we find ourselves in now 
Um, and all of the graffiti that is in and you see in, involved uh, in in protests and some of the, the you know the um, resistance movements now and, and just you know what you know where where do we find ourselves now with with graffiti and culture um, you know given that it is still highly criminalized though it is also widely commercialized too yeah. widely commercialized yeah but um, but it's still it's still wild and untamed and, and it's still uh, a kind of freedom that you don't have in any kind of other situation where you have permission or you are being paid to do it or you're speculating on getting paid and um, this is a situation which I think the writers who are active appreciate and love which is uh, you're free and this is one of the, one of the times you're free and I know you know did you see the David Gonzalez article in the Times last week I did not about how graffiti has come back. Oh, no. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'll check it. He, yeah. he set out with the lockdown. He set out to uh, uh, see what was going on and if there was any going to be any kind of graffiti response. And uh, I don't know why I'm being called. Oh, that's okay. Do you, uh, it's my wife trying to... Do you want to get it? I'm, supposed to, I'm doing this. So she needs to, she needs to chill. Okay. You, you, you can also get it. I could pause it if you if you wish. Want to pause it? Let me let me go see. Okay. I'm in the podcast, baby. Oh. Cash, we'll uh, just edit this part if that's okay. What? I didn't turn it on. I'll do it. It's it's a different. It started an hour earlier because of Chicago time, and it's almost over. So I'll turn it on. Oh, I didn't understand. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry. sorry about that. Oh uh, no, I'm sorry. So where? So just yeah, you're, you're you're mentioning the, the David Gonzalez article and yes, yes. So what he did was he drove all over the city taking pictures of of graffiti, not not you know uh, Black Lives Matter art and that kind of thing, but style mm. and mostly throw ups and tags, and they're new. There's like a new crop of young people who are who are coming out and this hasn't been we haven't seen this it's been you know people you've been seeing the murals of old timers when they make them usually with permission or in some kind of situation like weekend painting in a place where they're not bothered um this was these were kind of you know in some cases amateurish so you know that they're they're new and fresh um some really nice ones really good really good styles but he got a, he got quite a wonderful collection of what's out there. Yeah, I didn't recognize any names. But. Yeah, no, I'm looking. I'm looking now. Yeah, I mean, there are some names that I see. You know, I, I mean, New York has stayed obviously very active, um, yeah. and and I ima- I imagine you know I imagine you know you must get hit up all the time from new writers or young writers, uh, you know, to check out their work, to document their work. How I mean, how often does does that happen? Um, actually, not very much. Okay. Uh, because I'm I'm kind of elusive, and and it's a it's a project that I did which took years and which which took a great deal of my attention, and um, 
and I kind of did it. And I don't, when I see something nice, I like it. I take pictures of it and stuff like that, but I'm not out going out looking for it. And I think that, you know, I don't, who, who has to? You, you've kind of passed on the baton at this point. Yeah. And, and people with their iPhones are taking everything. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of the young people, not any more young, who I knew back then, are really spectacular photographers. And they're they're just taking it, you know. Somebody like Nick One, um, you know, he's he's professional grade photographer of art. Yeah. He's out there. So what what is kind of occupying your your time, your your creative time now? What what are you? What, what are the things that you, you're working on currently? Um, currently, I think probably the main thing to do is to archive everything. Um, I don't think, I think the, uh, the Bronx show is probably the, the last one that, that I'll do unless somebody just wants to buy a package and take it to, you know, pay for it and everything. Yeah. Uh, then then I'll, I'll, I'll recreate it. But, um, you know, bringing that show to the Bronx was kind of apex of what I consider my career. Bringing it back home like that and making it available for almost six months to the community in a in a cultural institution which was free and open to the public. So that was that was that made me feel really good. <clears throat> Having said that, and that's that's done. My job is to finish archiving everything and putting in some kind of cohesive order so that I can find things. Right now it's still chaos. I had a, a great deal of help through working with SUSO 33 from Spain to get that far and further help from a friend, uh, Emmanuel Aldello from Mexico City, who is a uh, himself, he's an artist, activist, and uh, works with, uh, with youth using hip-hop and graffiti modes to, to communicate between groups and between adults and kids. Um, and he has basically scanned and <clears throat> cleaned up all of, all of my photos that deal with people. People, b-boys, jams, stuff like that. So that's been a real help. And that's, we're in the middle of that, really. Um, and uh, so that's fun. And for fun, I'm, I'm playing music with, with uh, I'm playing Son Orocho, which is a, I don't know if you know what that is. It's, it's a Mexican music from Veracruz State in Mexico. And it's uh, Caribbean, basically. It's Afro-Mexican. Oh, wow. Because there were plantations in Veracruz and Chapas and places like that, which where they had slaves from from Africa, um, and the music is similar to Caribbean music, except the difference is there's a lot of indigenous influence because on the islands the indigenous people were were more than, more often than not um, exterminated or died, and Mexico is such a big place that um, they they survived and there was a lot of interaction between them and the Africans and and with uh, with the Spanish influence of, and Italian of the Baroque instruments and music you've got this wonderful mix so and there's a lot of people from Mexico in New York 
who play it, and I've hooked up with them. Oh wow! Well, you were learning to play and learning to do it. It's a great form. It's a great community music form. You know, rather than a performance, it's just everybody you know in the town, grand grandparents down to grandchildren, mm. playing together and and singing the rhyming couplets, which are there's a whole repertoire of them, and then the idea is to make new ones that are relevant to the current moment. Dang, that sounds incredibly hip hop. Lot of fun, yeah, it's very, very, very hip hop. Dang, well, you you stay in the mix, uh, Henry, and um, and 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 very much putting on uh, and dropping gems, and and just you know the work is is so important and has been so important to so many, and you know I, I thank you personally because. You know, it was a, a incredibly big inspiration as a, as a young person and continues to be um, your work. And uh, I just, you know, am grateful and grateful for your time in the Corner Store uh, today. Great. Well, it's such a pleasure to to uh, be on your show, on your podcast, and uh, to be able to communicate to people. And uh, I'm happy to do it. Thank you, man. Shout out our super producer, DJ Cashera. Big up boss man, Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our Instagram. It's corner underscore pod on IG, on Twitter. Tell us who you want to see in the corner store. And also, please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our Patreon account. It's patreon.com, cornerstore underscore pod. The Corner Store is brought to you by Stolen Spirits.